accessing library computer data. Out there, there are no saints. Just people. Hey everybody, welcome back to the show. We're continuing our run through of Star Trek Deep Space Nine, and right now we are up to the episode called Improbable Cause. It is the 20th episode of the third season, aired on April 24th, 1995. Teleplay goes to Rene Echevarria and Robert Letterman and David R. Long at the story credit, directed by Avery Brooks. In this episode, Odo begins an investigation after a bomb destroys Garrick's tailor shop. Part one of two, helpfully in parentheses on Memory Alpha. Anyway, we're joined by a couple guests. Clay, how are you? Good. Uh, this episode reminded me of the time I couldn't figure out who ate the burrito that I left in my fridge. Yeah. And then it turned out that I never had a burrito in the first place. You, yes, you, you, ate, you ate your own burrito. You ate your own burrito, yes. yeah. yeah. <laughs> uh, and we're also joined by Darren. Darren, welcome back to the show. How are you? Uh, how are things? Glad to be back. Um, this, unfortunately, has not reminded me of any incidents in my own life, which makes me feel very sad and boring. Yeah, it's a, it's a, it's a tough... Well, you know, you could just take, uh, take an uh, instance from here and, and just start it on your own. I frequently you know, meet just, with people... You gotta people, be proactive. I frequently yeah. meet with people in <laughs> caves, too, so it's, a, it's a, lot of, uh, a lot of sort of memory triggering for me on that level. That's most of New England is meeting people in caves. <laughs> I, I like Clay's sort of self-actualization approach to improbable cause. It's like, if your life's a little dull, sort of take charge of it. Blow up I your mean, own that's, shop. That's what I took from this episode. Yeah. There's a lot. Uh, uh, yeah, it's an episode that teaches us that you can get multiple morals from the same story. But anyway, we're going to break down. If you and, think someone's trying to get one over on you, get one over on them first. We're going to get one over down. on yourself. <laughs> yeah. improbable, yeah. <laughs> improbable cause, which is the first of a two-parter. Next will be Dice Cast, but we're going to be focusing on improbable cause in this episode. So we're going to take a break. We're going to play an audio clip. Me, Clay, and Darren are going to come back and break it down. They're all dead. I take it you're not going to mourn their passing. Oh, quite the contrary. In fact, if these were different circumstances, I'd be celebrating tonight. So you did know them? Oh, yes. We were quite well acquainted. In the Obsidian Order. Oh, Constable. We've been down this road before. I don't see why you... Enough of your dissembling, Garrick. I am not Dr. Bashir, and we are not sparring amiably over lunch. Now, you dragged me into this investigation, and you are now going to cooperate with me. Dragged you in? I don't know what you're talking... You blew up your own shop, Garrick. All right, so, Clay, after a long, middling boring section of season three that we made it through which had people uh questioning their faith in the series to up to a certain point we have a couple uh people who are listening along just like yourself who are watching ds9 for the first time um season three was a bit of a challenge coming through to uh to get at least to get to this part there's a lot of sort of middling episodes that lead up to it um and we had talked about on the search where we were saying if you if you didn't want to watch DS9, if you wanted to like curate it, you could probably watch Emissary a couple episodes from season one and two, and then start with the Jemadar and the search to sort of reboot things. Mm-hmm. Um, the feedback that I got from that, it was a lot of people who are very in love with DS9 saying that they consider Improbable Cause to be the second pilot. Um, and that they wouldn't say that the search would be that type of thing. But this is all a long way of saying that the show is, this is considered to be a turning point for the series as a whole. Um, Wait, this is supposed to be like a good one. Yeah, <laughs> so we'll have a lot. To, we'll have we'll have a lot to talk about 
But um, da- Darren, do you want to? No, uh, I'm I'm obviously kidding. It's very good. Do you want to, Darren? Do you want to talk about the? You tend to know uh, this stuff better than I do about the uh, production hell of this episode, and then we'll sort of get into it. We don't need to spend too much time with it, but if you just want to sort of uh, lay out how this all went down in real time in 1995. Well, I mean, the interesting thing about Improbable Calls in the Diet is cast. Well, there are several interesting things, but the most obvious thing is that it's the first two-parter in Star Trek history that doesn't have, like, part one and part two behind the two parts. But so obviously up until this point, you had, like, the Maquis part one, the Maquis part two, the Search part one, the Search part two. You did have the three-parter that led into the, the second season of Deep Space Nine, but those are sort of, like, roughly sort of disconnected episodes. This is the first time you have a big two-parter where it's not, like, Improbable, improbable Calls part one and Improbable Calls part two. It's Improbable Calls and the die is cast. And one of the reasons for that is that these... Well, okay, this episode began as a self-contained narrative. It was originally pitched by the two writers who you mentioned uh, who were responsible for the story credit there. It was um, Robert Liederman and David Orlong. And they'd originally pitched this, I believe, as a sequel uh, to Second Skin uh, earlier in the third season where Garrick murdered Entek on the trip to Cardassia. And the idea was that this would be the Cardassians sort of getting him back for that. Yeah, and that's the episode the writers, where Kira. That's the episode where Kira gets turned into a Cardassian. Yeah, and and Garrick goes home and and sort of you know murders an Obsidian Order agent, and it's like, oh hey, um, it's good to be home. Uh, I'll see you guys soon. Um, whereas, so basically, the idea was that after that, the Cardassians would try and murder Garrick, and then you'd have a big murder mystery that would lead into it. And while they were writing it, um, it was Ronald D. Moore and Renee Echevarra were the two guys who worked on these two episodes, and they're working on them together. And they discovered that the they couldn't come up with a satisfactory resolution to the story that they were telling, which is Garrick is almost murdered by the Cardassians. And we find a way to make the Cardassians not murder him at the end of the story. And they found that they couldn't really do that and couldn't really find a way to gel it. So they came up with the idea, basically, of tying it into... The last time I was on, we talked about Defiant. And in that episode, you obviously you had the mysterious fleet hanging out in a nebula, controlled by people who shouldn't have mysterious fleets, and certainly not hanging around in nebulas. And this, uh, basically, they tried to tie that idea into this plot, uh, which was interesting because when they came up with those ships in Defiant, they had absolutely no idea what they were going to do with them, which is a recurring motif when you get to, like, Deep Space Nine embracing serialization, long-form plotting. All of the -the behind-the-scenes interviews amount to, when we did that, we really had no idea uh, what we were going to (laughs) do with that idea. Uh, We just thought it was cool. We thought we'd throw it in, and we figured it out as we sort of went along. No, sorry. Sorry to break in, but... You f- you think you would have like two or three other things that you'd want to do with that idea, like what instead of just tossing it? You think it, when you come up with it, you should think of like, well, you know, this would be good here, and maybe we could do this and this with it. Like having <laughs> having an idea, just tossing it in and being like, you know what, we'll figure this out later. It, it's it's very surprising. It is. Well, I mean, I think what's interesting is if you look at Deep Space Nine as a whole, it holds together remarkably well. But if you look at it very closely you'll notice that there's a whole lot of, like, big ideas that they randomly throw into episodes that they simply Mm. never touch again. So, for example, Defiant is one example, where, like, the thing that comes out of Defiant that you expect them to deal with again is maybe Thomas Riker being rescued from that life of indentured servitude as a slave on a a slave labor on a Cardassian penal colony. Maybe they'll come back to that idea. It's like, no, 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 no. Fleet hiding in Nebula. That's where we're going with this. But also little stuff like, say, the, the Natima Lang stuff in the second season where you have a Cardassian dissident movement that is never mentioned again, various other threads along that. And it's, it's, there's a whole host of stuff that's sort of like fans and even like 
writers doing like the various tie-ins after the show's ended has sort of picked up from the run because the writers just were like, oh, we'll throw this idea in. Doesn't really work. Let's just ignore it and focus on the stuff that does. There's a kind of a nice improvisational sort of quality to it. And it's interesting how many like big Deep Space Nine stories often begin with an idea that's radically different from what the episode becomes. Like, uh, again, I know you haven't seen this, Clay, so I'm not going to be too specific. But in the fifth season, there's a big two-parter that maybe changes a lot of the underlying principles of the like Deep Space Nine and the larger Star Trek universe. But that began from a pitch that was like, hey, wouldn't it be cool if we did an episode with a guest star that was like The Great Escape? Uh, and it's like, okay. And now all of a sudden it's this gigantic political thing. And in probably that's, calls, that, that's the one where Cisco shoots Jake, right? Yeah, it's a big <laughs> reveal that, that Jake was actually a founder all along, but he was one of the good ones. And then it turns out, no, he was actually Garrick. Um, it's a big shocking twist. Nobody saw it coming at the time. The internet would have exploded. We don't really talk about it much now, though. Um, but yeah, it was um, the Improbable Calls and the Dyes cast sort of developed in that way, where it's like, we have an interesting story you want to tell. We can't come up with an ending. So the writers just go, uh, make it a two-parter, uh, which is why if you watched, you guys would have just recently watched uh, Shattered Mirror um, yes. in, the, in the third season. That was hastily cobbled together in order to fill the gap between the two episodes because they produced Improbable Cause, not realizing it was a two-parter, needed to push something into production in the middle so that they'd have the time to work out and make the Dias cast work. It's not um, a, it's, so it's not, not Shattered Mirror, it's Through the Looking Glass. Oh, sorry, apologies. Shattered yeah. Mirror is the fourth season one. Yeah, yeah it's, it's the, That's uh, so fascinating the Mirror Universe. So Improbable Cause was produced before um, Through the Looking Glass, but Through the Looking Glass aired after, and there was a break in between filming these two episodes where they shot that. Uh, yeah. I think they should have just done it in order. Wouldn't that have been great if in the middle of that <laughs> big murder mystery, it's like Cisco just fucks off to the mirror universe for a couple days? <laughs> I mean, it would have it would have added to the general sense of Cisco fucking off for a couple days to the mirror universe. That is through the looking glass in general. I think. Yeah, uh, I, need, I really need to get out of here for a couple days. <laughs> this is yeah. getting just too intense. But yeah, that's the backstory between it. They actually included the original ending to Improbable Cause here, where Garrick is talking to Bashir and he says. Bashir, if something happens to me, go into my room and find the secret panel and pull out this isolinear rod. That was the original mm-hmm. ending to Improbable Cause. And the, they were just going to introduce this isolinear rod that it would be, uh, Tane would be like, oh my God, Garrick has this information on me. And they wouldn't explain what the rod was about. And the writers were just like, obviously this sucks. This is a terrible ending. Um, so let's try to get around that. And they, uh, Michael Piller, in one of his last stands on the series, suggested making it a two-parter. Um, and they did. So it ends with they didn't they couldn't figure out how to get Odo off of the warbird. He said just leave Odo on the warbird and have him go with this confrontation later on. But let's get into improbable cause. So I think improbable cause, Clay, I'll throw it over to you, is that improbable cause is different in a better episode than the previous things because DS9 at this point really has a kind of episode that it does well, and it's obvious when they start trying to do TNG episodes, and they don't come out very well. So we we had watched the Bashir distant voices, oh, distant voices, yeah, split memory thing mm. that feels very TNG. Through the Looking Glass is like whatever. It's the Mirror Universe. We're going to run out of gas there. They're starting. To, they're starting to every time the show steps away from those kind of sci-fi heavy sci-fi things and steps into this political realm, I think that the show improves drastically. And we had a couple tweets at us that just people are kind of amazed that Improbable Cause comes from the same writer's room as Distant Voices. Uh, they seem like mm. two different shows. But what did you think about this one leading into it? And why do you think, if you, if you do think it's good, which I think you had said that you, you did, why do you think it's good? 
well, I think it, it continues what we've said about the ones that are exceptional in that it's exceptional because it deals with stuff that's very specific to the show. Um, it's deals with the, uh, the politics they've set up. It deals with stuff that's happening specifically on deep space nine in a way that it doesn't happen on, on, uh, the enterprise, uh, involving the community that's there. And, um, all of the, uh, culture that they've built and all of the stressors that are sort of used as the framing device for the show, they're actually leaning into them in a real story way that makes them seem a lot more uh, pressing than they do in most of the other episodes where it's just like an excuse to explain why they're all in Deep Space Nine. Um, and on top of that, I thought it was actually, generally I don't really like mysteries on Star Trek. Um because I feel like they don't end up being super satisfying, but I, I think Garrick is such a good character that it really allowed them to lean into it, the mystery aspect, and, and kind of throw a curveball. Because, I mean, as soon as everything started, I just started thinking to myself, all right, what's the twist here? Why is he... What's his involvement? Clearly he's lying about something, but what? Because they've set him up as a character who lies, but not all the time. And not explicitly black and white lie. Sometimes he's kind of lying. So there's a lot of grayness to figuring out where he's where he's going to fall on the board. And um, when you get to the point where Odo's like, "Dude, you blew up your own shop." That was that did cross my mind, and I was like, "Oh wow!" I was surprised that they called it out because and didn't just save it for like a like a late episode reveal or something. Like the fact that Odo actually figured it out <laughs> um, and was ended up being a, a, uh, a catalyst for a great scene where instead of just tr just the usual like uh, uh, grilling interrogation scene, Odo comes at him having figured it out, and the nature of Garrick's character allows that scene to work really well because he's never going to admit that Odo is right. Um, and so it was just it's it, it's using all of the things that are unique to Steep Space Nine in a very effective manner, I think. Um. Yeah, I think I'll stop there. Yeah, Darren, how do, what do you say is your general overview about why this is a good episode? I mean, it's interesting that like you and Clay have talked about like the differences between what Deep Space Nine does as compared to what the Next Generation does, and it, it's very interesting. Like you single out obviously Distant Voices as an episode that feels like DS Nine doing Next Generation, and it very much is because that's a Joe Maneski story, if I remember correctly. And Maneski is a writer more associated with TNG and later Voyager. And he's very much like your formulaic, episodic sort of like, he likes doing sort of techno babble, sort of psychological, mythological stories, which don't work as well in Deep Space Nine as they do on Next Generation. Oh, sorry, don't work as well in Deep Space Nine as they do on Next Generation. But in terms of the way that Deep Space Nine does what it does, what I've always found interesting and perhaps sort of underrated when you talk about the differences between TNG and Deep Space Nine is how much Deep Space Nine isn't radically different from TNG so much as like an escalation of it or a pushing of it. And you can see a lot of stuff in um, this episode, for example, which is stuff that the next generation did, but Deep Space Nine does it and does it in its own way. So, for example, you have that wonderful introductory scene with uh, Bashir and Garrick, where they're having breakfast, they're having lunch together. 
And that's pure, I think, pillar filler is how it's been described. It's what Michael Pillar <laughs> introduced when he did the third season of The Next Generation, where scripts would run short. So he would have characters have conversations with one another about stuff that was either thematically related to the episode or was just designed to emphasize character. I think of, for example, in A Matter of Perspective, you have like Picard doing painting and Data showing up and critiquing it. Right. Or The Defector, where, for example, Data's doing like learning to do Shakespeare and Picard is sort of teaching him. You get these little touches there. And like the introductory scene to Improbable Cause is a Deep Space Nine version of that, where it's a similar conversation. It's a human and an alien character talking about the things that make them different from one another and touching on ideas of culture. But it's also done in a way that's a lot more layered and sort of deeper and more developed than what TNG did. So, for example, you have like this wonderful conversation between Garrick and Bashir where they're talking about how fast humans eat their food, which is an interesting observation of itself. But it's something that Deep Space Nine comes back to thematically repeatedly over the course of its run, which is this idea that these humans live in a post-scarcity economy where replicators can give them absolutely everything they have, uh, everything they want, but there's still, like, there's still that innate human hunger in there. There's still that sort of human greed. There's still that human sort of paranoia, fear, and anxiety. And the idea that if you take away food from people, they will become messy and grungy and nasty in a way that like the next generation doesn't concede but it, it's done in a very clever way it sort of sets up observations that like quark makes later on and even in this episode you have like small lines like odo talking about you know when he's meeting his informant and the informant's like uh you know this is maybe a step to war and but it doesn't make sense and odo's like well does war ever make sense which is again like deep space nine writers taking a small character scene and making it point to something sort of bigger in the outset and clay is entirely right when he says that like star trek mysteries don't really work and they don't really work largely because like when next generation did it the solution's always techno babble it's yeah, always right. like oh well the character's not dead because he's hiding in a refracted transporter beam or this assassination wasn't carried out by a person it was carried out by this piece of technology which the audience not existing in the 24th century couldn't possibly have guessed as the outcome to this mystery whereas right. like the the thing that improbable cause does really 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 well um is that it it basically it's a mystery that you can solve at home and clay's right like he guessed that it was Garrick blew up his own shop, but Garrick blew up his own shop is a really satisfying resolution to this mystery just in terms of plot. It's very clever. It's very simple. It's very straightforward. And it doesn't rely on like all this sort of nonsense techno babble that the audience wouldn't possibly know because again, we live in the 20th century, 21st century and not the 24th. So it does a lot of that really, really, really well. And it, it, it just, it's very, very, very well constructed. And it's, it's interesting because this is like, there's a sense watching this that Deep Space Nine has figured out what a resource it has in Garrick, because this is really the first episode where they share Garrick. Garrick has, to this point, been a supporting character who's largely defined in orbit of Bashir. Think about him, mm -hmm. for example, in, obviously, Cardassians, in past prologue, in Distant Voices, which you watched recently. Um, he's generally been a character who hangs around with Bashir and spends time with Bashir. What the Improbable Cause does, which is very clever, is it says if we take Garrick, and we put him in a story with another character in the ensemble, in this case, Odo. Well, Sparks will fly, and he's a fascinating character no, no matter what you do. And later on, you have episodes that pair him with, like, for example, uh, Quark in Body Parts, uh, Worf in, uh, in, sorry, in, <clears throat> in the fifth season, or in Purgatory's Shadow, yep. with Sisko in Improbable, sorry, in, uh, in Purgatory, <coughs> no, in, Pale, in Pale Moonlight, uh, Night. Uh, O'Brien in, in Empok Noor and stuff like that. Uh, Esri even in After Image and stuff like that. But this is really the first time that Deep Space Nine really seizes on the idea that Garrick is a character who is more than just like Bashir's friend. 
he's a character who's interesting of himself, which is like a huge growth of the show. Well, that's a and oh, sorry, uh, yeah, go ahead, Clay, and then I'll. I'll well, I was just gonna say, and and Garrick Garrick relates to these different characters in different ways as well. You know, the way that Bashir views Garrick is very different than the way that Odo views Garrick. Bashir views him as as like fun. Fun and kind of a, I don't know if I'd call him a peer, but like he, Bashir is trying to bridge the gap culturally, whereas Odo does not think that way about anybody. Odo sees Garrick as the, a disgraced Cardassian, uh, Obsidian Order guy. And that, that informs the way that they talk to each other. And so I think it's really smart to branch Garrick out because he, he's so nebulous and so, uh, um, conniving that the way that he interacts with each character can be completely different, but also be consistent. He's, um, I, it's not a great line of dialogue. I think I, uh, the, the acting between these two is fantastic because I think they're two of probably the strongest uh, actors on the show at this point. But the, when Odo accuses Garrick of blowing up his shop and he's just finally, he's, he's hit his breaking point with Garrick's lies and he pushes him and just says, I am not Dr. Bashir and we are not sparring amiably over lunch <laughs> is kind of the, the way that, uh, Odo sees it. It's just a the way that the episode elevates Garrick to me is by pairing him with Odo. Like you were cl- saying, Clay, that uh, Garrick and Bashir, Garrick always has the upper hand against Bashir. Bashir is too naive and not sort of like aware of the depth of what Garrick is doing. And Odo being suspicious and paranoid of everybody as a founder um, is just kind of it allows him to Garrick has never been challenged in an episode the way that he is here by Odo and Odo gets a lot right about him. Garrick tries to push back as much as he can, but you, you get hints of the fact that Garrick um, is a little bit, not a little bit out of his league, but he's a little bit challenged by Odo in a way that maybe even past Garrick wouldn't have been. Uh, Maybe Garrick has lost something, which will continue on into the rest of it, but it's, it's a nice pairing. I like the two working together. They're great actors playing off of each other, and they're very um, enjoyable to watch with each other. Yeah, and to, uh, to just kind of speak to what you're saying, Darren, about, about the, uh, uh, the resolution of the mystery, um, I think it's also satisfying because making it a two-parter means that the resolution of the, the mystery does, is not the point of the story. Yeah. It's not just a Scooby-Doo thing where, you know, Garrick pulls off his mask and it turns out that he's also just Garrick and blew up his own ship or blew up his own st- shop. And that's just the end of it. And he has a big scene or whatever. That's just a launching pad for what's coming next. And I think that I, that is actually really satisfying. That's um. so I guess that the improbable cause is um. it spends a lot of time with these two characters. They sp- They have a lot of scenes together with each other. Um, they have the big shuttlecraft scene. They have the sort of interrogation scene in the office and things like that. They have the Odo working through his Flaxian assassin interrogation scene, which I really enjoy. Even though it's kind of goofy. <laughs> I think the guest star there does a good job of selling it. Um, one of the more interesting makeups I've seen. They, I, I guess, all the ones recently have been kind of weird and interesting. Like that one's pretty weird, and the distant voices one is pretty weird. So they're they're definitely uh, for these one-off characters. They're definitely leaning into it more than just putting a bunch of bumps on their face. Yeah. And it's a, you know, to, I guess that the, the big thing about DS9's, the way that this goes, is that it's a, this episode is really strong to me because of how character-based it is. Even though it's setting off a lot of stuff that's going to build uh, into the next episode and sort of the series going forward and they're trying to move the chess pieces around on the board, 
the it's it's a very small story on some level. Like it, it's almost surprising that this whole arc is really built around just Odo and Garrick interacting with each other. Um, mm-hmm. And it's 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 different from TNG in some way that I'll say is another big thing that I think about what Deep Space Nine does differently is that well. TNG would have other races of aliens come along and sort of pop up uh, in episodes. They felt like they were... They're the problem that I have with the Bajorans in Deep Space Nine so far. When the Bajoran episode comes along and the Vedics show up, the Vedics feel like they're just plucked out of the ether and they appear on the show for some reason. Then they they disappear into nothingness and have no impact on anything else. They just walk through that big gear door with a bunch of other people. (laughs) Right, and they go off into Bajor or something like that. And then... This this and then eventually they get killed and I get really positive about that. Yeah, you 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 miss it. You call him the wrong name and he's gone forever. But the the um the thing that DS Nine does with the species is because it's more politically based. You get a better sense of the species as a culture against each other. Yeah. And in this one, you have the Romulans and Cardassians working together in a way that I don't think you'd ever really get a sense outside of a mustache twisting plot in TNG where they were working together. DS9 really provides this level of, and it does it by sort of backseating the Federation in this episode. It really focuses on these are actual cultures that exist in this universe, and they all have different ways that they're responding to the Dominion threat that's coming through. And Tane's plot, which is kicked off here, goes to show that they aren't just kind of popping in to have a little appearance. They actually exist when we're not seeing them on screen they're plotting things they're doing stuff they're trying to get their own edge against the dominion and against the other alpha quadrant powers and stuff like that um I don't know just if- uh just because i too lazy to look it up um tane is this is he the same guy from the uh the wire the episode yeah where they're going to they go down to the, the planet to find out about garrick Garrick's and they talk to that fun. guy yeah. bashir bashir goes down and Elam is his first yeah. name yeah yeah yeah, and th- that is Tane, who they're talking to in that episode? Yep. Yep. Okay, just making sure. Yeah. Which uh, is a good callback, which, because, you know, I mean, that's a a character who I think is effectively used, because he is directly connected to Garrick, and I, I think that's a, that was a good choice. Did, um, do you want to talk about Tane, or do you want to, does anyone want to sort of respond to the, the culture thing? I don't know if that's something that you thought of, but I'm interested in other people's perspective about the, the depth well, of the cultures on this show. The culture thing is probably more tied into, say, the die is cast, but it's very much something, you're right that it's something that Deep Space Nine does, and it's something that TNG never did. And this is an example of, like, Deep Space Nine again deepening what TNG did. Like, the obvious comparison between this two-parter and the next generation is the best of both worlds, and that obviously explicitly comes up at the end of the die is cast, where somebody says, hey, this is very like that thing that happened on TNG. Uh, but in terms of, like, context, in terms of being a story about other cultures doing their own thing... This is also kind of evokes uh, Redemption, which is the two-parter from the fourth or fifth seasons where the Klingons engage, you know, have their civil war. And what you find with uh, that two-parter is it's a story that's nominally about the Klingons, but when TNG tells it, it has to come up with something for the Federation to be doing because the Federation are our heroes. So you have this whole weird subplot where Data learns to take command and the Federation secretly saves the day by exposing the fact the Romulans are working behind the scenes. Whereas with this two-parter, one of the interesting things about it is that the Federation are very pointedly observers in a drama that's playing out using three other alien powers, the Romulans, the Cardassians, and later on the Dominion. And the idea that, like, all of these agencies have been doing their own activities, as, you know, um, as, as sort of pointed out, that take place behind the scenes. They've been doing their, like, 
machinations that maybe explain a little bit of what you've been seeing so far. So, for example, it explains the fleet in, the, in Defiant. It explains what the Romulans were sort of doing in Visionary. It sort of hints at why the Romulans wanted the information in Search Part 1 and Search Part 2. Uh, but it does that in a way that kind of marginalizes the Federation and allows these age, these alien races to have their own agendas, their own sort of priorities, and their own internal politics that aren't simply refracted through the characters that we know and love. And there's something very interesting in that, because again, the show sort of picks that up and runs with it later on. What I do find interesting in terms of how this is, is written, this episode, and it kind of gets back to the appeal of Garrick and the appeal of Odo. And again, this is something that I think Deep Space Nine did much better than TNG or TOS, is that Deep Space Nine isn't afraid to have characters actively lie and to have characters be dishonest to both each other, themselves, and the audience. Um, in that, like, I, I absolutely adore the original Star Trek and I adore The Next Generation, but the dialogue traditionally in the original Star Trek and The Next Generation is often very blunt. It's like, I tell you what I'm feeling. You have Troy on the bridge of the Enterprise, whose job <laughs> is primarily in the rare occasions where a character is not saying what they're feeling, to say that the character is not saying what they're feeling to explain it for the audience. Uh, and even and- then, she's not really good at it. But that's, <laughs> no, she- that's a story well, she- of real time. She's largely redundant because characters generally do state how they're feeling. Right. Uh, like that yeah. bit from Futurama you know, it's, where it's... Sorry, go ahead. It's, I was just going to say, it's funny. I never really thought about it that way, but that's a really good point. <laughs> One of the reasons that Troy doesn't really work is because she doesn't really have a purpose because everybody's pretty blunt. Yeah, yeah. that's a good point. Um, but yeah, so you have on, on... And now, to be fair, there are like characters who have depth and nuance, but that's largely given through performance. So, for example, Leonard Nimoy adding this layer of sort of conflict to Spock where you have mm-hmm. this subtext that simmers below the line, Patrick Stewart doing the same thing on The Next Generation. But with Deep Space Nine, you have the writers, and it's it's really the only Star Trek show that does this. And I think one of the reasons why I find Voyager so frustrating is because Voyager is very much in that next generation, this is what I'm feeling, let me explain to you how this is what I'm feeling sort of dialogue approach to Star Trek. Whereas in Deep Space Nine, you have this sort of layer of ambiguity where characters are lying. And it's not just Garrick, even though everybody points out that Garrick's lying. But you have, like, Odo himself repeatedly, and particularly in this two-parter, is suggested to be hiding something from the people around him, and maybe even a little bit from himself. Like, there's a wonderful moment where Garrick, like, in the runabout together, says, you know, I find it interesting that you ascribe feelings and motivations to me that you know nothing about. Which is basically Garrick going, Odo's big, like, you know, I stand apart from all these human emotions thing is absolute BS. And Odo kind of maybe knows or acknowledges this. And you have this sort of nice dissonance that runs through the show where characters can say one thing and mean something else. And the show trusts the audience to kind of figure it out, which is one of the really great things about storytelling in Deep Space Nine. And it's what makes, I think, Improbable Cause work, which is that like, and the two-parter as a whole, which is that both Garrick and Odo are nominally doing and saying things over the course of the episode, which are completely false. And the episode trusts the audience to understand that they're false and to also be able to read the kind of subtle, like, you know, subconscious almost intentions into their dialogue and what they're saying. Like, there's this whole wonderful back and forth in the runabout between Odo and Garrick, in which Odo points out quite literally that what Garrick's doing, where he's trying to go and rescue Tane, where he promised Mila that he'd go and rescue Tane, doesn't make any sense if you accept everything that Garrick said at face value. But you don't accept it at face value because Garrick's lying. So you have this whole, what is the real relationship between Tane and Garrick? What is really going on here? What, why did Garrick get exiled in the first place? Because we know for a fact that it's not any of the stories that he told Bashir in The Wire. And it's kind of nice that Deep Space Nine trusts its audience enough to do that because it gives it more 
scope to tell stories that are kind of bigger and broader and more ambitious. And I think perhaps more interesting than the stories that you could tell on, on Next Generation or even on the original Star Trek. Yeah, some of them... Um, um, well, I'll just add the point that oh, um, yeah, yeah. he's pointing... Uh, Garrick is trying to... Uh, I view the, the conversation on the runabout is uh, Odo at his most overwhelming to Garrick. Garrick's struggling a little bit in that conversation. He's trying to get something out of Odo that he can use against him. And the implication there is Odo's feelings for Kira which is never yeah. stated in the show. And it actually is mm. a little bit surprising that the show, you know, to compare it against a TNG, it doesn't have a reminder where Odo is like lustfully looking at a picture of Kira before uh, Garrick walks <laughs> in or something. Like there, there is nothing there for the audience to, you have to have been watching the show to understand that there is something that Odo's hiding there. If you just drop in, you wouldn't be aware of it. Yeah, it's, um, it's remarkable. Sorry, go ahead. Oh, I was just going to say, touching back on the uh, uh, the cultural thing, Wes, and the position of of uh, uh, the Federation that you brought up, Darren. Um, I think the thing that makes the, the, it kind of ties back to what I was talking about earlier about why Deep Space Nine excels when it focuses on the the what makes it different from from TNG because we're TNG and the previous, up to this point, all incarnations of Star Trek are the people on the ship going somewhere, and then they are more or less the catalyst for whatever adventure happens. And the difference is Deep Space Nine, they are more or less an occupying power, if maybe not to that extent. They don't move. And so it allows the Federation to have to deal with the things happening around them as opposed to being the wedge into an issue like they usually are. And it's a really different and fascinating approach to that stuff. And I think it, it's, it is interesting to me um, because you've got your Star Trek characters who are more or less the same across all three series at this point, right? Like the Deep Space Nine guys have a lot more gray to them and, and act differently, but they're still characters on a Star Trek show their inclination is still to uh, be active. And that's something that you know, we'll talk about the next one that kind of I didn't really like, actually, about the next one. Um, but it creates a tension between them and Starfleet because you've, they're writing Starfleet kind of realistically in the way that they approach the situation, which is more or less, meh, this isn't really our problem. Let's kind of hang back and see what happens. And when you push that up against your Starfleet, your Star Trek characters, yeah. that's going to create uh, conflict, which is going to drive the, drive the story forward. It's, it's a really interesting way to handle this, this whole uh, universe and, and the interaction between all these different groups of people. The, um, should we talk about Tane then, I guess? Oh, do, do we want to talk about the? I like the, I'll just, I like the mystery. Um, I think you guys are right about Star Trek. I generally like Star Trek mystery episodes, but I like them despite the fact that they have the Sherlock Holmes problem, uh, which is that in every Sherlock Holmes story is the reason I don't like them is because Sherlock Holmes just says at the end of it, oh, by the way, I noticed all these things that I've never mentioned before, and this is how I put it all together. Um, and you're, you're yeah. impressed by the sort of like fitting the pieces together that the writing takes there, but it's not very satisfying because you have no chance as a reader until you get to the end and he tells you everything. That's kind of what Star Trek right. mysteries are. Um, right. the, the mystery here is very strong because it basically stays away from the techno babble. 
that you guys were talking yeah. about. It has a mm-hmm. lot of great scenes. I love the scene in the cave. I think that guest actor, Cardassian, is really fantastic as well. The sort of shadowy figure who tells Odo everything. Um, Does that guy ever come back? Uh, the character or the actor? Because the actor pops up a great deal. The character. The started. Oh, um, he's, suggest- he's referenced at some point down the line, but he never appears again. Okay, because I was kind of surprised. I was like, oh, that's kind of a big thing to inject into the story that they've never brought up before yeah it's just odo's um, connection odo has odo's connection is just yeah this guy. i guess i think part of me was expecting some sort of, honestly i wouldn't be surprised if that was an instance of let's just throw this in here and maybe we deal with it later because i was thinking like there's got to be some reveal to that like it turns out to be ducat or something right but um but apparently not no <laughs> um yeah, he's just so shadowy. Like the the fact yeah. that he that 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 Odo has a guy he goes to that you've never heard of before, and they present him in that way. I was like, there's got this. There's got to be a reveal here. Usually, that they, when they do this, it turns out to be oh, it was actually O'Brien in a Cardassian mask or something. Well, it's you know, a little. Like, it's a little wishy washy. Maybe that character is if the, if I think overthink about it, it's a little bit touchy because that Cardassian is supposed to be a part of the Central Command, which is the military aspect of Cardassia, and. Mm-hmm. He sort of acts, I don't, I don't know if I'm supposed to think that they act totally different, but he acts more like an Obsidian Order agent. He, and well, he's he changed not, his appearance. Like, it makes it sound like Mission Impossible. It's like, yes. yeah. I don't want you to see me because I've changed my appearance. It's like, what, have you grown a mustache? Yeah, he's, um, he's, he's, he's got the, he's uh, got the a, he, original Cardassian facial hair that they had yeah. in the wounded. Yeah. Um, he's got a, he got a spoon enlargement. Yeah. He's, that, it's a very the, sensitive topic, Clay. The, the characters. <laughs> The, like those, I don't know if I'm supposed to really pay that much attention to it, but uh, the Obsidian Order is supposed to be totally the separate thing, and it makes sense that the Cardassians are somewhat similar because they are the same group of people that would act that way. Um, what I like about that scene is that that guy himself does not really know what's going on, which is mm-hmm. like he's not a a plot development that's just like here's a Cardassian who knows everything and is going to explain. He thinks that the Romulans are going to invade Cardassia because he's the military operation that is separate from Tane. And I just think that's really clever. Like the the mystery here to me is satisfying because it slowly builds, slowly builds. You get a lot of character scenes. No one really knows what's going on until you get to Tane at the very end, and he explains mm-hmm. everything. And I think that's really satisfying on a uh, a writing level. It also does a really cool thing with with genre in that, like again, and this is something that Deep Space Nine sort of did that the Next Generation the original Star Trek could never do, like Necessary Evil having this sort of like film noir sort of tinge to it as well. And this almost feels like a like a Jean Le Carre sort of story, and I, that's why, like, I, as absurd as the sequence of Odo meets mysterious informant who he never talked about before, even when it would have been useful, like when Kira was taken to Cardassia, I quite like that scene because it has this sort of like grotty film noir, like the light across your man's mm. eyes, the Odo sort of like standing with his back to the guy while the guy's at a higher level delivering exposition, sort of almost like sort of like an Orson Welles character in some sense. I kind of like the mood of that because it feels very much like a side of the Star Trek universe that we haven't really seen yet. And the kind of stuff that Deep Space Nine does relatively well, where it deals with, like, the... Because um, my abiding memory of The Next Generation is when The Next Generation did Space Pirates, it was basically, like, an excuse for Picard and Riker to hang around in leather and shoot guns at each other. <laughs> yes. Um, whereas, like, well, I really like that, like, Deep Space Nine sort of looks at this grotty side of the universe where it's, like, people meeting in dingy bars or in caves and unable to look each other in the eye and sort of trading secrets and passing information. And you're right that, like, one of the really cool things is that he doesn't know what the deal is. And I quite like the bit at the end where he's like, you know, I take it this settles my debt to you. 
Although if you were to tell me what the what is actually going on, then I would consider myself in your debt again. Which yeah. sort of sets up this sort of like wonderful ambiguity. And again, you're right when you point to it as like a sense that nobody knows what's really happening or what's really going on. Because Deep Space Nine has that recurring like 90s anxiety about the world sort of spiraling out of control and nothing making sense and there being conspiracy. I think of, for example, like O'Brien in Whispers, you know, where it turns out that actually he's an android um, and like everybody's conspiring against him, but that's because he's an alien underneath it all. Here there's a nice sense of like, well, there's this plot involving Cardassians and Romulans, but not all Cardassians and not all Romulans are in on it and not all of them know what's going on. And like all that's happening is people are being killed in order to tidy up loose ends um, rather than being related to the plot that's taking place. Like Garrick isn't killed because he knows what Tane's planning. Garrick is killed because, like, Tane just wants to tidy up loose ends. Yeah. Yeah. Mm. Um, the, I, I guess we'll, we'll move that into a discussion about Tane, because we do talk to him for about seven minutes or something at the end of the mm-hmm. episode. Um, Tane is a great performance again. The episode's filled with very good performances. Tane is someone who, and Dooley, the, Paul Dooley, does a good job of... Um, being supremely confident and in control while also not coming across as that kind of a character. He comes across as more of like a a gentle father figure. I really love the line of dialogue he has about where Garrick um, calls the Romulans pointy-eared at the end, and, and <laughs> Tane has that great explanation as to why he did that. Like, he, he's forced my hand. I can either uh, show my allegiance to them by defending the Romulans, or I can. they've planted a seed of discord between us because I'm just going to let Garrick here insult them. Um, mm-hmm. and it's clever I, I, I like that kind of stuff I also love uh, Odo's response to that where Odo's just like shut the hell up and just explain what's going on because I'm a regular Star Trek character and I don't like ambiguity and nuance because <laughs> there is there's like the bit where Gary, Odo's response to that is I don't find any of this interesting you guys go to such lengths to hide the true meaning of your words that you end up saying nothing which yep. is kind mm. of this wonderful sort of like back and forth and dance but it's exactly what makes Tane and Garrick so interesting is that you're right, like, Tane, Tane would be a lovable uncle in any other, you know, sort of setting, but he's also a lovable uncle who, like, murdered five of his closest associates and tried to murder his protege slash, you know, assistant slash really close friend in this yep. episode as well. You know, the, I think the last ten minutes with Tane um, really kind of adds to what sets these two episodes apart from the uh, the previous two parties that they usually do in that uh this is the first time where i haven't really felt super satisfied by the end of the first part um and i think you know it, this doesn't have the same kind of first part punch that a best of both worlds does like the the main story you kind of get to a certain point with the story here where you know you're into the uh the mystery and then they kind of solve the mystery more or less and then they just kind of keep going and they end it in a way that I didn't think was like it didn't have that punch that they usually go for and I'm and I don't think that's a bad thing because I think it's emblematic of how they are approaching these episodes as one big story not just or I should say a continuing story not yeah. necessarily just an episodic thing where previously it's it's a two-parter, but it's still episodic, so we still have to make sure we we go out with a bang. But here it's like, okay, this is going to continue, so we can kind of end this 
in a fairly mundane place. Like the stuff they're setting up is 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 big, obviously. But well, like you know what the, you know what they did. They the way to make it a traditional Star Trek two parter is to have the fleet reveal, which is in the dying yes. cast, and you bump that yes. to the end of this episode. Hundred yep. percent. Um, but yeah, like when when they start getting into Tane explaining his motivations for killing everybody, I I don't know, I didn't really care. Like it was it like because they're naming stuff that I wasn't really attached to, uh, you know, characters I've never seen, um, and so like as a way to wrap it up, it's like all right, I mean he's explaining the the mystery, but I I that's not the interesting part of the story to me, um. They bring it back a bit when they have Garrick uh, decide that he's going to go back to to the Cardassian side, um, but yeah, it, it, I I found it I was fascinated at how they don't really go for the big ending because the story isn't done. It's just sort of like this is the chapter break, which yeah, is you know yeah. something it, they haven't really done up to this point. We'll, we'll talk about it in the the split between the two episodes too, because Improbable Cause is the smaller story um, mm-hmm. and. The next one is the big story, I suppose. So uh, maybe, you know, to have that more stereotypical Star Trek ending, you'd have the fleet reveal. But it's since Improbable Cause is completely about Garrick and Odo at this point, Garrick's betrayal of Odo at the end kind of appropriately ends Improbable Cause. Yeah. You know, it's funny. If you look at the two episodes, it's kind of an invert or inverse of the way that they usually do it, because it's usually the big action episode is the first one. And then the second one is usually a lot more dealing with repercussions. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, so it's it's interesting that they've in, they've sort of inverted the style here. Also, one of the things I really like about this as a two parter is that the two. Well, you're right that there it's one big continuing story. The two episodes feel distinct in ways that like Star Trek two parters don't always feel. And I mean, I think there are exceptions. Like for example, Birthright Part One and Birthright Part Two are two very different episodes. Like in the sixties and the Next Generation. But here, like, these are one story, but they're two very different episodes of themselves. So Improbable Cause is like a Jean Le Carre sort of spy movie, noir, thriller investigation uh, into, like, a bomb explosion that leads back to, you know, the idea that the, perp- you know, the victim is the perpetrator and all this sort of stuff. Whereas the second one becomes this big, sprawling galactic epic, but they are, like, firmly almost delineated against each other. And I think that that's right when you point out, for example, like, if you wanted to do the traditional Star Trek two-parter, it would be the fleet decloaking on Deep Space Nine would be your cliffhanger. But the issue with, like, you end in Probable Cause where that episode or that part of the story ends, which is like, okay, it's no longer a mystery. And the die is cast, then is free to begin with, okay, this is a gigantic sort of, like, you know, Watergate-type, like, you know, invasion of Pearl Harbor-type situation with, like, massive galactic repercussions. And I like that even though they're one story, they are two very distinct episodes within that, which is kind of like one of the issues with the third season of Deep Space Nine. And I think it's an interesting season. I think you're entirely right that there are large stretches of it that are not very good. But it's a sense that they're learning how to do what they want to do later on. And part of that is learning serialization, stuff like that. Like one of the big issues with the third season of Deep Space Nine is that they've had the Dominion around since the start of the season this is the first time they've actually really substantially done anything with the Dominion as a concept, and you're 20 episodes after they've appeared. And it's like, it feels like they forgot about them, or they haven't been keeping fresh, even though they've had, like, little references to them and subplots and stuff. This is the first time a big thing has happened with them. And, like, it feels like these guys are moving towards serialization. This two-parter sort of moves towards 
what Deep Space Nine would eventually embrace in terms of like serialized storytelling, which is you have episodes that are distinct and exist very much of, of themselves. And I think that like Improbable Cause is a very different episode from the Dias cast, but you put them together and they tell a larger story of themselves. They're still distinct stories with like five acts running through them with character arcs that run through each individual episode and come to a conclusion and like a resolution's offered, but those plot threads dangle and carry over. They don't always carry over as overtly as, oh, by the way, Odo and Garrick are now on a Romulan warbird heading towards the uh, Gamma Quadrant, going to destroy the Dominion. But it sort of sets up what Deep Space Nine would do later on, uh, which is very, very clever, and why I really, really like the two-parter, and why I think that it's entirely correct to talk about, like, Improbable Cause and Dia's Cast as two separate episodes, even if they are, like, to be bridged by the... to be continued and part one of two as specified on memory alpha. Yeah. <laughs> I would like to, uh, I would like to point out that I'm very impressed that you mentioned the, uh, low point of American history, the Watergate invasion of Pearl Harbor. <laughs> Good point. Sorry. There was a comma there. I just talked very quickly. <laughs> I know. I just, I just like to think of it as, as it was, you were referencing one event and I was like, yeah, man, that was, that was a crazy time. <laughs> <laughs> the seventies were very, very confusing. Um, yeah. <laughs> um, does it, I, I think uh, I'm going to wrap it up here just so we can move on to Dice Cast and we can unshackle ourselves from trying to talk about the whole thing as a... As well, a, it's a two-parter, so you have to say, or will we? Right, exactly. I'm going to go shake uh, someone's hand and say, I'm back, and we're going to take a break. I'm going to play what? an audio clip, okay. and we will come back, give our final thoughts, read some patron thoughts, and then call it a day. The same thought myself. But then, those days are long gone. At least they are for me. You on the other hand, seem to have left your retirement far behind, unless you're simply on a pleasure cruise with your pointed-eared friends. Cunning, isn't he? He makes a racial slur within earshot of two Romulans, putting me in the position of either defending them, thus giving away my allegiance to them, or letting the comment pass, in which case he's managed to plant a seed of discord between us. Frankly, I don't find any of this interesting. You both go to such lengths to hide the true meaning of your words, you end up saying nothing. I think you'll find when I have something to say, you won't have any trouble understanding it. All right, everybody. So, as always, if you support the show on patreon.com slash the Penske file, you get to leave thoughts about upcoming episodes. We read and react to them on the podcast. I'll start doing that now. Stephen Cobb says, Improbable Cause, great build-up, good mystery with a decidedly Garrick twist. Paul Dooley is very menacing as Tane. Odo's observation about the Cardassians going to great lengths to say nothing at all is literally an encapsulation of Garrick's character. Best scene is when Garrick tells Sisko to ask the Romulans about the assassinations. Sisko says that he doubts they will tell him. Then a jump cuts to Sisko saying that he is surprised that they are telling him. It almost feels like a modern <laughs> TV joke, uh, a la Family Guy's cutaways. It had me laughing out loud. Um, let's see here. Next comment. Improbable Cause from Holly McLaughlin says the Garrick Odo sparring is wonderful as they are mul- as as are the multiple layers of Garrick's duplicity and the way that Andrew Robinson plays this wonderful character. Absolutely love this one. Joint Mango, Improbable Cause, boom goes the dynamite. Meme ready comment there. Chad Wiley says Improbable Cause. <laughs> this show has done so uh show has had so many good character pairings, but Odo and Garrick together has to be one of the best. Garrick always feels like he's running circles around the other characters on the show. But Odo holds his own and proves himself as adept at unraveling mysteries as Garrick is at creating them. We've heard about how good an investigator Odo is, but it doesn't really land for the audience until an episode like this where you get to see him in action. But the later part of the episode really belongs to Garrick. Following up on The Wire, we get more hints of a backstory culminating in the reuniting of Garrick and Tane. Seeing those two interact is fantastic. 
Tane is, in some ways, a look at who Garrick might have been if he hadn't been exiled, and the promise of seeing Garrick back in his element at the end of the episode is the best kind of cliffhanger. Kyle, I don't Barrett. know if Garrick and Tane are interchangeable that way. Like, I... <laughs> Garrick seems like kind of a pain in the ass, even by Cardassian standards. <laughs> I, I, well, I will have... I think that that... It's tough. <laughs> if you look at it in the context of this, this episode alone, I think so, but over the course of the two-parter, I think you're supposed to see the difference there. Um, yeah. Cal Barrett says, Improbable Cause. I really like Avery Brooks as the director... And I know Wes has complained about the blocking in DS9 before, but here I think it's pretty great. It's a very good episode, but has there ever been a word more out of place in Star Trek than cobbler? Um, <laughs> yes, that's a good point. I've always found that strange when they what? refer to him as, as a cobbler. Well, yeah, the Romulan gets, gets it wrong, calls him a, a cobbler. Even as a tailor. Why do you need a tailor? Yeah. Just hit the button on the replicator. You got a new suit. He even says that he, what he does is he programs replicator programs to to. Oh, does he, he say that? He does. He doesn't say that in this episode, but he said that in the past. So, who knows? Um, what was he? Oh, I, th that makes it that makes it even funnier in the second episode where he's lamenting like, being a tailor. He's like, I you know what the sad I'm part is? I'm actually really good at it. <laughs> um, Kyle is right that I I like Avery Brooks as a director. He directed. Um, Tribunal uh, in the late second season, which was yes, great. and he directed um, the, the one that has the Jim Hadar baby. Oh, at the abandoned. He did that yeah. one, and he did the, the one that I'm thinking of is the the one with the. We'll uh, keep naming good Avery Brooks episodes until we land on it. It's a terrible fascination. It's the one where everyone falls in love or whatever. Oh, um, a Midsummer Night's uh, Luxwana. Yes, Luxana. yes, that's right. He directed that, and that was a really good directing effort from him. I like Brooks as a director. I didn't realize until you said it that he directed this one. That's that's good. And uh, I have complained about the blocking, uh, just because I think the longer the Star Treks go, the worse the blocking becomes. It's just a reflection of modern TV. When when I go to, this is all purely selfish, when I go to make the um, screen caps for the episodes, when I was doing TOS, Every screenshot was like perfect blocking. It was like yeah. Hitchcock level, like everyone is perfectly placed, everyone's there. And when I go to this one, it's like people are sort of like falling over each other and it's <laughs> off center and the framing isn't right. And it's just very, um, it's something that's been lost, I think. It's really funny how much bl bad blocking stands out. I've probably mentioned this before, but uh, not to go on a, too much of a tangent, but uh, the first date that my girlfriend and I ever went on, we went to see Harry Potter like six, I think. And I hadn't seen Harry Potter's two through five, so I didn't know what was going on. So I was more like all of that stuff stood out to me a lot more. And I was just like sitting there chuckling because every single scene that had two people in it was two people standing uh, in the midground talking. And then one of them takes two steps forward towards the camera and they talk a little bit more. And then the person who's still in the midground then takes two steps forward. So they are now on equal footing again. <laughs> Every single scene was the same way. And I was like, holy shit. Is this just, are all movies this bad? I just, you have to know. No, it's like in The Simpsons when Homer goes to the baseball game when he's sober. And he says, I never realized how boring this is. Is it like if you're disconnected from the plot and you are only looking at a technical thing, does it stand out that much? Possibly. Well, there's a lot in those books. They get a lot of stuff. They don't have time for creativity. They just got to get all yeah, this, this content not. out. Neil Brennan says, Improbable Cause. Okay, a little convoluted. Neil is one who, uh, this is his first watch through of DS9. Okay, so this is a little convoluted, but worth it for all the Garrick and Odo tete-a-tete. Pumped to see where all the Alpha Quadrant stuff goes. And that's it. Thank you guys for uh, leaving your comments. Thank you for supporting the show. We'll get to our ratings now. Uh, Darren, as a reminder, we rate things on a scale of 1 to 5. 
And, and thank you, Darren, for not leaving a comment for this episode that you're on. And like just really being like, I think Darren is the best host. He should be on all the episodes. That takes a lot of class not to do that because it's something that I absolutely would have done. <laughs> the, oh, no um, worries. Uh, they, they just got buried in the bottom there. We'll put them on the die's cast. Well, he put so many racial slurs into it. I can't possibly read this on the podcast. Mm. Um, all right. So we'll Words do Words that rating. don't belong in Star Trek, eh? The pointy, um. A lot of pointy eared <laughs> references. So we'll um, do our ratings here now. This is one of the things, uh, Clay, we've talked before about how rating TNG episodes was easy, and this is getting a little mm -hmm. bit difficult for me. Mm -hmm. I'll go first. Uh, I went last last time. So I'll, I'll go first, and I'm going to say I'm going to give Improbable Cause a five, because I think Improbable Cause is Star Trek's character work really shining, and it is the show... The show is very good at doing good character work stuff. When it does good episodes, it's usually character work stuff. There's always the weird cause and effect episode that's just really great sci-fi um, premises. Mm -hmm. But in general, it's always about the character work. Here, it's really, really strong. This is like the show's wheelhouse at this point. And I think that it pretty much does it as strong as any episode in season five has been to this point. It's a really strong script, really great performances. And the mystery keeps you involved the whole way through. So I don't really have any problems with this episode. Clay, do you want to go next? Yeah. <clears throat> I was kind of unsure, actually, what to do. Because while I think this is a really good episode, I think that it is better in the context of the two-parter, which is not something that is always true. Like, best as I've said many times before, and I said it when we covered it, if I had to pick one episode of TNG to watch, it would be Best of Both Worlds Part 1. Not necessarily Best of Both Worlds Part 2, just Best of Both Worlds Part 1 is just front to back, perfect. And like, the excitement level is high, you know, I'm not going to get into that again. But, I think with this one, it works better for me in conjunction with the second part. Uh... When I think about a five for this show, the one that stands out to me immediately is Duet. Because it is excellently done, the drama level's high, the character work is really good, and it's self-contained. Now, I'm not saying that self-contained necessarily means that it's is what makes it better. But I just think this one, on its own, doesn't totally hold up as well as it does as part of the, the as part of the two-parter that being said i'm gonna go four because uh, sure. i think i still think it's really good i think it's you know uh, clearly they're t taking a step in a different direction and it's i really enjoy everything in it but as a episode by itself i think it's not a high not not as high as it could be let's put it that way sure sounds good darren I'm afraid I'm, I'm going to go with five here. Um, five Delavian chocolates out of five. And it's such a jam-packed episode that we didn't even get to talk about the really awkward homoerotic subtext between Bashir giving Garrick chocolates <laughs> and Garrick telling Bashir to eat his isolinear rod. Yes. Um, <laughs> I mean, I was just thinking of, in a modern TV show, it's not take that isolinear rod and eat it. It's take that isolinear rod and shove it up your ass like that's the yeah. there, it's just a it's a funny little joke i really love the fact that it's a reference to the original ending and they just kind of like shit all over it as a stupid idea <laughs> if it was star trek discovery he would have said shove it up your ass <laughs> <laughs> and thrown in some gratuitous efforts yeah speaking of words that don't belong on star trek uh cobbler yeah. is the least of it 
But no, I, I absolutely love this. I actually kind of disagree with Clay to a certain extent in that I think that it works really well as an episode of itself. Um, not spoiling too much about the next episode, I think this is very much the stronger of the two-parter, uh, but I think it, it's it's just brilliant because it's such... It is character-driven. It's very mm. much focused on these characters um, and, and sort of what they do, and it kind of it emphasises what Deep Space Nine has learned from the next generation and how it's pushing itself forward, which is what the third season really is, being the first season of Deep Space Nine after the next generation went off the air. It's like picking up the ball and trying to run with it. And like, there's been a lot of stumbling, a lot of falling, a lot of tripping in the third season, but this is the point where they really seem to land the layup, if I'm getting my sporting metaphor right here. And I'm not Close sure enough. that I am. Yeah. <laughs> Clay's but coming it, it, in with a hard foul to knock you down <laughs> and stop this point from being made. I think um, that... But, go ahead. Go ahead there, sorry. No, go ahead. Well, I just think that my the way I'm going to open my discussion about the dice cast will add more uh, clarity to my rating for Improbable Cause, I think. And maybe I agree with you about that, Darren, but it'll be interesting. And it's something that we've, me and Clay, have wondered about uh, in terms of rating episodes and what people consider to be classic episodes of Star Trek. So um, I'll call it there. But thank you guys very much for coming on. Thank you, patrons, for supporting the show. You can go to all the social media stuff, Facebook, Twitter, blah, blah, blah. Discord is the place to go. We have the Discord channel set up. Leave your thoughts there. Patreon.com slash the Penske file. If you want to support the show, it's much appreciated. Uh, it is the only reason that we're doing Deep Space Nine at this point is because you guys are so generous. Not because we like the show. No, the show is garbage. Uh, I'm, I'm really sweating here trying to come up with reasons as to why I could justify a five here for a terrible show. Um, that's it. Patreon. So when are you guys covering Voyager? That's <laughs> I thought it was understood that our rating system was not star-based. It was piles of shit-based. The problem with Voyager for me is I look at it in the distance, and it's like it's like downgrading from my Italian sports car to a minivan. I'm like, oh, Jesus. <laughs> like, maybe I'm at that point in my life, but I really don't want to fucking drive a minivan around for the next seven it's, years. Um, it's a minivan that's already been driven for seven years, and <laughs> none of the charming people who you used to carpool with in it. <laughs> That's a good way and of then, looking at it. And, and it's a minivan that, like, when you bought it, you bought it because you were told that it has a really cool air conditioning system. But then right. when you buy it, it's like, oh, the air conditioning doesn't actually work. There never was any air conditioning. What are you talking yeah. about? <laughs> it's because a woman sold me the car, and a woman <laughs> oh, uh, is obviously has the best oh, opinion about it. And then we're going to wrap up this episode of the Penske File. <laughs> Wes has been fired, and I am your new host. <laughs> we'll have to get to Janeway. There's... Uh, Janeway is maybe the most interesting captain on some level. We'll, we'll get to Janeway. There's uh, interesting is a euphemism. Interesting is a interesting in a, she is the she is the character that's the most probably interesting to talk about. A lot of the Star Trek captains aren't that interesting when you sort of break them down, but Janeway kind of is. I'll see what you're saying, and I'll raise you. Janeway is the most interesting three captains to talk about yes yes that's 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 um that's a better way to state what i was trying to get at um yeah it's going to be interesting if we get to voyager because i was actually just talking last night about how once we finish this if you go on to voyager i might have to take a break i know <laughs> it's, it's a, although um, sean sean murphy is always asking me if you guys are going to do Voyager, so I might sit Voyager out, and maybe you guys can do it. I don't know, because he seems really interested in. in doing Voyager. Well, we're still three years away or something. Um, let's see. We're going to wrap it up here. Guys, thank you very much for coming on. Clay, thanks for coming on. Yeah, thanks for having me. Darren, thank you very much. Pleasure as ever. Guys, we'll be back in a couple days with the Dice cast. See ya. <laughs>